Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. More deeply than ever before. If you're one of our guests today here in the room or tuning in online, uh, I want to take an opportunity to introduce myself and let you know my name is Brock. It is my privilege to be part of the ministry staff here at Heritage. In fact, most weeks, it's my honor to be the one who gets to spend time in prayer and study to prepare a message on behalf of everyone, something that could be a blessing to everyone who attends our worship services here at Heritage. And most of the time, most weeks, when I engage that discipline, that task, I make it my goal to prepare a message that's going to be accessible and applicable to everybody who's listening, no matter what stage you're at in the spiritual journey. But today, today's message is a little bit different. Today's message is not for everyone. This message is specifically for people who have already made a decision to be a follower of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want to give you this warning ahead of time and let you know how thrilled we are that you're in the room, but today it's going to feel a little bit like you're reading somebody else's mail. But I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you're going to be listening in. In fact, my hope is that if you're somebody who's not made the decision to be a Christian, that as you hear today's message, you're going to be intrigued because we're talking about what I think is part of what makes the good news of Jesus so appealing. So let's hit it together. You know, if you're anything like me, you've, you've got a collection of stories in your memory of times when you have experienced pitiful customer service, right? I mean, I'm talking about the interactions that make you want to leave a scathing review, you know? Like you want to get online and let everybody know. You want to tag some company, You want to speak to the manager. You want to warn other people to avoid the business in question. Those moments can be so incredibly frustrating, right? I mean, those moments will stick with you. And if I was to line up everybody here and ask you one at a time, I'll bet almost every person here could immediately give me some specific stories, multiple specific stories about moments when you encountered an employee who gave an entire company or an entire industry a bad name in your book, right? But on the other hand, I wonder if just as many of us were able to tell some specific stories of times when we had a positive customer service experience that we'll never forget. My son and I had an interaction like this just a few days ago at a place where we were absolutely not expecting to have a good experience. For months, we had been trying to schedule an appointment for my son to get his learner's permit for driving, and all 
of the appointments at all of the DPS offices within two hours of here were all full for months. I mean, it was going to be like March before we could get an appointment for him to get his learner's permit. And so we expanded our search and we decided to try to book an appointment at a DPS office in Houston while we were going to be down there visiting my family for Christmas. And so on December 27th, Two days after Christmas, during that week when nobody really wants to be working, right? Like December 27th, we go into the DPS Mega Center in Spring, Texas at our appointed time. And I've got, I'm clutching my little folder with all of the documents that I've prepared, hoping that I didn't forget anything at home or something like that. And we walk in and it's an enormous place. They call it a mega center because it's like they've put 12 DPS offices together. Okay. I mean, it, there are hundreds of people in this building. They probably got at least 70 different desks where people are receiving service. And when we walked in, I looked at that and I thought, oh no, we're going to be here for hours. And a DPS employee met us at the door and greeted us and directed traffic and gave clear instructions about where we should go for check-in. And I'm going to spare you all the details about every step, but I want to tell you that over the next 45 minutes before we were finished, and that's, I say that like that's a record, I think, you know. In the next 45 minutes, we interacted directly with about seven different DPS employees who every one of them was responsive and knowledgeable and smiling. And every one of them asked, is there anything else that I could do to help you? Anything else that I could do to serve? And every one of these people surpassed all of my expectations for customer service. And I'm not the only one. In preparation for this message, I looked up the Spring Mega Center for the DPS on Google, and you would be shocked at how many people went to the trouble and took the time to go and leave a five-star review for the Department of Public Safety in Spring. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. People that wrote out lengthy accounts and mentioned employees by name about the incredible service that they received and their experiences were a lot like mine. And if you work for the DPS, I don't mean to be disparaging, but I have to admit that my previous experiences with the DPS had not given me high hopes about what that day was going to be like. And by the end of my time there, it was obvious that something was different at the mega center in spring. I was intrigued. I wanted to know, how are they maintaining such a happy staff? I was tempted not to tell you about it because I'm afraid you'll book up all the appointments and drive to Houston when you need to go to the DPS. But I was just so impressed. They made this impression on me that immediately made me have to come home and tell my extended family about what we had just seen. And today, here at Heritage, we're talking about the impression that Christians make in the community, which is a really important topic for us to discuss because this may come as a shock to you. It turns out most people in our community who aren't part of a church already have an idea in their mind of what Christians and Christian churches are like. Most of the people in our community who have no connection to a family of faith have an impression already about what families of faith are like. 
And I'll bet I don't have to tell you that some of those impressions are not five-star. Some of the impressions that people in our community have about families of faith are not glowing reviews. In fact, I suspect there are people in our community who would anticipate a more enjoyable experience at the DPS than in church. And when that's the case for a lot of people in the community, it makes it challenging, it makes it intimidating when the preacher tells you, go out there and share your faith, right? I mean, it makes it difficult when the message, part of the message that you hear at church is that we ought to be going into the community and telling people about what we have found here. So in this first sermon series of 2024, we're talking about what it would look like to create intrigue in the way we live out our faith. We're talking about piquing the attention of our neighbors, piquing the attention of our coworkers and our acquaintances who think they already know what God and God's people are like. We're talking about surprising the world. And fortunately for us, we are not the first generation of Christians to consider and think about how our faith is perceived by the people around us. This morning, I want to take you to a text in Scripture that maybe you haven't read in a long time. It's found in the book of Titus, which may not be as familiar to us as some of the other books that we usually study. It's really common for us to spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Corinthians, or Romans. But here we are. We're going to this tiny little book near the back of the New Testament called Titus. And it's one of those letters... And I mean that. It's, it's actually a letter that somebody wrote to somebody else. It's one of those letters that's contained in the New Testament, but it's different than most of them. It's one of the few letters that's not written to a group of Christians. It's not written to a church. It's not written to be circulated to a whole region of everybody who believes in Jesus. This is one of the very few letters that's written to one person. It's written... To a man named Titus. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus, who was one of his partners in ministry. And Paul and Titus had traveled together. They'd been to Jerusalem together. They'd been to Greece together. They'd spent all this time going around and telling people about Jesus and planting churches. But at the time of this letter, and this is late, this is late in the New Testament timeline, by the time of this letter, Paul had sent Titus on an assignment on his own. He sent him to the island of Crete, the largest of the Greek islands. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. I thought about showing you some pictures of the beautiful beaches in Crete and thought you might be distracted, but if anybody wants to take a ministry assignment in Crete, look up the tourism department and you'll be very interested in going. Titus ends up in Crete serving these churches, these baby fledgling churches. And his assignment is to finish up some of the work that Paul was not able to accomplish when he apparently traveled to Crete. We don't have any record of that journey. But Titus is not going to be there permanently. It's not a permanent assignment. It's just a short-term trip. He's got work to do, and he's supposed to be teaching these people so that when he leaves... They can have churches that are self-sustaining as they depend on God's empowering spirit. 
And so Paul, in this letter, is trying to outline some of the things that Titus ought to focus his energy on while he's on the island of Crete. All right, That's the setting for what's going on. And in Titus chapter 2, he gives, he gives, Paul gives Titus this instruction. He says, teach, this is chapter 2, verse 1, he says, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. All right, these are some churchy words I get. But this is giving us a clue about what Paul's getting at because he doesn't just tell Titus, teach sound doctrine, right? He doesn't just say, keep telling the Christians the same thing we already told them. He tells Titus, I want you to teach the Christians in Crete about what goes along with sound doctrine, about what is appropriate to sound doctrine, about what should be paired with having the right beliefs and the right understandings about God. Titus is supposed to teach people about how they should live as a result of the doctrine that they've already learned. He's supposed to be teaching these people about how the knowledge that they got about God is going to change their living as they serve God. Because it's not just about what you understand up here. It's not just about what you know. It's not just about what you think. It's not just about what you believe. The faith that has been handed to us has implications for how we live every day. And so Paul, in the next few verses in chapter 2, is going to get pretty specific and he's going to address some particular groups in the social order and in the family units that existed in the Cretan culture in the first century. Now, I need to give you a warning here, okay? Before you read ahead, before you read these verses that we're about to explore, you need to be aware of the historical and cultural distance that exists between us and first century Crete, all right? Paul is addressing people who lived in a particular ancient context that had a totally different concept of individual rights than our culture has. And it was not Paul's goal to set the entire community, the entire culture, the entire society into conflict and disarray. And so Paul intentionally does not address the patriarchal systems or the inequitable power dynamics that existed in that culture. I want to give you this warning ahead of time, okay? What he does is he gives Christian people a guide for how to live faithfully inside the system that they find themselves in, all right? Let's pay attention to that. He starts in verse 2, and this is what he says. He says, remember, he's speaking to Titus, giving Titus instructions. He says, Titus, Teach the older men in the church, teach the older men who are Christians to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. All right, then he's going to go on, verse 3. In the same way, or likewise, he says, teach the older women. Now, in that culture, 30 would have been about the mark of when you became an older woman, okay? He says, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. He's going to go on. 
Then those older women who are over 30 years old, you know, then the older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be a subject of their husband to their husbands so that, now pay attention to this part, so that no one will malign or ridicule or poke at or question the Word of God. He says in verse 6, Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, in everything, set an example, because Titus is a young man. He's saying, Titus, set an example for the other young men. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. And here's another one of those so that's. He says, Titus, do that so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Can you imagine if you were an enemy with somebody and you couldn't think of anything negative to say about them? You'd start wondering why you were their enemy, right? Verse 9, Paul says, Titus, teach the slaves who are members of the church to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And here's that other phrase again. So that, he says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And that's the phrase we're going to focus on. I think this is what this entire passage is all about. But I want to pause for a second here, and I want to be very clear and remind you about what it means to read this passage in context. Because this passage, for all the mention of being subject to husbands and the mention of slaves obeying their masters, this passage is not an endorsement of some kind of patriarchy or slavery. In fact, I'm convinced that Paul hated slavery and patriarchy. But he didn't have the ability to demolish those systems in the culture at Crete, and so he tried to work around them. And I want you to notice how he does it. When he talks about the older men, he tells Titus, he says, teach these older men about temperance and self-control and faith and love. And of course, those are Christian characteristics, right? I mean, if you use your thesaurus, you'll find all of those in the list of the fruits of the Spirit. These are the characteristics of a Christian, but there's a reason that Paul is specifically mentioning these characteristics with regard to the older men. And the reason is because in, the, in that culture, in the first century culture in Crete, the older men were at the top of the pecking order. They were the heads of the households. They were the civic leaders. They were the landowners. They were the power brokers in that culture, which meant there was nothing making them be self-controlled. There was nothing that required them to be loving. There was no cultural expectation for them to show temperance or to show faith. 
In fact, in their culture, it would have been totally natural, totally normal, totally common for the oldest men in the family, the oldest men in the society, to just use force and demand to get their way. Which is why Paul is saying something significant when he tells Titus, teach them to choose a different way. Teach them to choose something different, something that would be seen as weird. Teach the ones who don't have to be self-controlled to be self-controlled anyway. Teach the ones who don't have to be loving to choose to be loving. And in the next verse, he writes about the older women. He wants Titus to instruct these older women to, to not participate in slandering anyone, including their husbands, who were at the top of the pecking order, as we've mentioned, and could just do whatever they pleased, right? He wants, to, he wants Titus to teach these older women not to be involved in slandering anyone and not to drink too much. And he says that not, not just because that's good instruction for every Christian. He says that particularly about these older women because that was what was common for older women in that culture to do. It was what was typical, and Paul didn't want those women to be typical. He goes on and he speaks about the younger women. He says they should love their husbands and children and be self-controlled and pure and be busy at home and be kind and be subject to their husbands. And i got to tell you, choosing this way to live, choosing to live your life this way gladly would be countercultural. It would be seen as odd. It would be seen as weird to accept that station and accept those assignments and proceed with joy and not just constantly venting resentment. It would be seen as weird in that culture, but Paul wants them to do it for a very specific reason. It's one of those so-that's that we highlighted. He says they should choose to live this way so that no one will malign the Word of God. Now, when he says Word of God, he's not talking about the Bible, okay? The Bible didn't exist yet. He's still in the process of writing part of it, right? People in Crete would not have any idea what you meant if you said Bible. But he's talking about the oral testimony about the message of Jesus. He says, don't let anyone have a reason to think. Don't, let any, don't give anybody reason to think that as a follower of Jesus, you're making that story look typical or unappealing. Don't give people a reason to say something negative about Jesus, is what he's saying. And then he, he turns the corner. He talks about younger men, people who also had a lot of power in that culture, and he wants them to choose to live with self-control. But again, it's not just about personal piety. It's not just he's just passing out the instructions he would give to every Christian. Paul knows that all the other younger men in that culture followed their appetites and do whatever they want. And they come home whenever they please with whoever they please. And so living with self-control in that culture would seem unusual. It would seem weird. In fact, it would probably lead people to ask questions. Why would a young man choose to live like that? Why would he do something like that? And in fact, Paul's very interested, very interested in Christians being asked 
good questions by non-Christians. He says in Colossians, he said, you should always keep your conversation seasoned with salt and be ready to answer, ready to give your answer for the decision you've made about faith. Peter says a similar thing. He says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you possess. Always be ready. If somebody asks you about it, if somebody says, why are you living like that? If you're one of the older men and they say, why are you living with such temperance and patience and gentleness? Why don't you just do what you want to do? If you're one of the older women and you're constantly involved in the gossip and the slander and the drinking together and that's just kind of become the norm for you, and then one of you chooses not to do that and somebody asks about it, Paul and Peter would say, be ready to answer about why you chose. Same thing with the younger women and the younger men and even with the slaves. In fact, finally in this passage, Paul speaks to the Christians who are slaves. And if you were a slave, the most natural thing to do, the most common course of action that you would take would be to steal from your master every chance you got. Every time they weren't looking, every time they were away from the house, you'd be looking for a way to advance your own cause and to humiliate the master whenever you could. But Paul wants Titus to teach the Christian slaves to honor their masters and be honest. And he gives a very specific reason for this. It's another one of those so that statements. He says the Christian slaves in Crete should choose to serve with respect and integrity so that... In every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Paul wanted the non-Christian masters to notice that when their Christian slaves were in charge, things went better. He wanted these non-Christian slave owners to notice that the Christian slaves were the most honest, the most dependable, the most trustworthy, the most respectful, because Paul is trying to influence a culture from the inside out. He's not trying to force down by using power. He's not trying to force down patriarchy and slavery and all of these other problems in that culture. He's trying to work like yeast through a batch of dough. He's trying to influence the culture slowly from the inside out. He's trying to help everyone on the island of Crete begin to understand and recognize the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul knew that if all the Christians on Crete, and I'm telling you, there weren't very many of them, okay? This is a fledgling movement on this isolated island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Not very many Christians there, but Paul knew that if all the Christians there, whether they were men or women, young or old, free or enslaved, he knew that if they would live out their faith in ways that were noticeable, ways that seemed odd, ways that were attractive, then people in the rest, the rest of the culture, people in the rest of the community would start to wonder, why do they do that? Why do they live like that? And I want, us to, I want to get us to thinking about this together. I want, us, I want to get us to thinking about, as a family of Christians, what kind of spiritual practices or behaviors could we practice in 21st century Texas that would get our non-Christian neighbors asking, why do they do that? I don't think it's going to look the same as in Crete in the first century. I think it's going to be different. And it's okay 
Okay, it's it's all right. As a as a student of the Scripture, all right, I'm telling you, it's okay to not assume that Paul would have the very same instruction for us as he did for the people in Crete 2,000 years ago. We're in a different context. It's a different situation, a different culture. But there's a principle here that we're getting at, and it's this question. What kind of spiritual behaviors could we practice right here in 21st century Texas that would cause our non-Christian neighbors to have their attention peaked, to perk up their ears, to lean in, to put their hand on their chin like I keep doing, and to say, what gives? Why do they do that? You know, I've noticed, and I bet you have too, I've noticed that in our culture in 21st century Texas, it is entirely possible to live a Christian life that looks very similar to the lives of some of your non-Christian neighbors. I mean, if you think about it, you probably know some people who live just a few doors down from you. People who live on your street or maybe live in your apartment building, and you have met them and spent time with them, and maybe y'all have had a cookout together or something like that, and you know them to be very nice people. And as you've gotten to know them more, you've noticed other things that you respect about them. You've noticed they use good manners and they respect your property and they pay their taxes and they get the mail for you when you're out of town, you know. And they donate to charity and they, they seem to support good causes and they have a strong work ethic and they're always responsible and they care for their kids and they care for their parents. I'm talking about people who live just a few doors down from you who have a lot in common with you, their Christian neighbor, but it just so happens that they're not believers and so they don't get up on Sunday mornings and go to church like you do. And the question I want to get us asking together is, what is it about your life compared to theirs that would ever make them ask why you've chosen to be a Christian? What is it about what they see in you that would ever make them ask, what gives? Because we seem so similar. We seem to have so many of the same interests and the same priorities and the same goals and the same responsibilities. Our lives look a whole lot like one another's lives, but they get up on Sunday and go to church and I don't. What else is it about your life or my life that would make them ask that kind of question? You know, the members of the early church typically did not preach to people who had not shown interest in hearing the message. All right, I'm going to pause there for just a second before we move on with the next slide there, Kevin. Usually, in most circumstances, when the members or the missionaries or the ministers of the early church went to a new city, they went to the synagogue. They went to a place where people were already worshiping the God that Jesus showed us. And then they just got involved in the conversation and tried to help people see how Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies that they were already believing and studying. Right? Like most of the time, we're not talking about people who were out preaching on the streets most of the time. 
Most of the time, we're not talking about people who were out there using a bullhorn and trying to convince non-believers to take an interest in the message. Most of the time, the early church preached to people who were already asking, what is your story? What is it that you believe? What are you trying to tell me? What have you experienced? What have you seen? Most of the time, the early church was speaking and speaking to and converting people who were asking questions like that. They weren't broadcasting over the radio waves. They weren't putting flyers out. They weren't like, you know, putting things up with thumbtacks on the bulletin boards at coffee shops. They were answering questions. And the early church grew by leaps and bounds. I mean like exponential growth continued to just explode. Unbelievable, really, how it grew. And I wonder, how do you think they lived so that outsiders wanted to hear what they had to say? What do you think it was about the way the early church lived their lives, lived their faith, that made outsiders say, tell us more. Because I don't see a whole lot of that happening for us. I don't see a whole lot of outsiders asking that question these days. But I know that the early church seemed to have the ability to surprise the world. You know, we're going to keep talking, and, and this is one of those sermons that can't fit into one week's presentation and so while there are lots and lots more things I'd like to say to you I had to leave some of it on the cutting room floor and save it for next week and the week after that but I want to remind you about an old hymn I had to pull out one of the old books an old hymn well it's not that old it was written in 71 but you know to me it's old it's the old hymn we grew up singing in church. It says, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. May his spirit divine all my being refine. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. When your burden is heavy and hard to bear, when your neighbors refuse all your load to share, when you're feeling so blue, don't know just what to do, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you. When somebody has been so unkind to you, some words spoken that pierce you through and through. Think about how Jesus was beguiled or mistreated, spat upon and reviled. And let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you. Last verse. 
from the dawn of the morning to the close of day, in example, in deeds, and in all you say. Lay your gifts at his feet. I remember this line from growing up. Ever strive to keep sweet. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in you. That's what Titus 2 is about. The whole chapter transformed into a song with lyrics and verse. But that song does such a good job of reminding us how this is possible. Reminding us why this is realistic. And it's because it's all about reflecting the beauty of Jesus. When I ask you, how could we live? How could we em embrace some spiritual practices that our 21st century neighbors would find odd? Like, that's easy, right? It's easy to do odd things. That's not the hard part. The hard part is allowing ourselves to choose the odd things that Jesus showed us to do. The odd things are following the instructions in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The odd things, is, it's things like resisting the urge to be violent, even when it seems justified. The odd things are forgiving when it doesn't seem deserved. The odd things are things like leaning towards somebody who's trying to break relationship with you because of something that's happened. And when you feel that relationship breaking up, coming on hard times, that relationship's on the rocks, the most natural thing to do is to say, well, if they don't want to be kind, I'm not going to be kind either. That's the most natural thing in the world to do. The most unnatural thing is to lean in and say, no, 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 I don't want this to go away. I want to save this. And if you act like that, people in the world are going to look at you and say, why would you do that? Why would you subject yourself to that? Why would you be, make yourself vulnerable to getting hurt again like that? These are the kinds of behaviors that would differentiate you from somebody in your neighborhood, your apartment complex who doesn't know Jesus. But let me remind you, the only way it's possible for you is if you truly know Jesus. Because these are fruits of the Spirit, right? These are the kinds of behaviors that are only made possible when the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your heart. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you for the next few weeks to make every effort that you can to be either here in the room, tuning in online, or listening to these sermons after they've been preached if you have to miss. Because together... Together, I think the world around us 
needs to see something that surprises them. Our community needs to see a faith that looks different than what they've come to expect. And may it happen through us by the power of God's redeeming spirit.